Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Lydia Perovich, a writer and journalist whose new book, Lost in Canada, An Immigrant Second Thoughts, published by Sutherland Books, tells her story of immigrating to Canada from Montenegro in 1999 and the questions about identity and place that she's grappled with ever since. I'm grateful to speak with her about the book and, among other lines of inquiry, some of its cultural and political criticisms of her adopted home. Lydia, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. There's a tendency in our popular discourse to either romanticize the immigrant experience or focus on negative cases of alienation, discrimination, and struggle. I interpret Lost in Canada as something of a midpoint on that spectrum where you've been successful in your adopted country, but feel increasingly disappointed with its cultural and political direction. Do you agree with my characterization of the existing literature and your own book? And if so, why do you think these extreme narratives about the immigrant experience are, are the ones that tend to get published? I do agree. I do, I do agree with your diagnosis. Why do we prefer the narratives of disintegration? I'm hoping it's just a trend. I think our publishing wants these narratives now. I think we're not really into stories about success, our successes as a country, our hopefulness, our optimism. The country was much more optimistic when I came here in 99. I mean, all countries have issues and it's a fluctuation through history. But back then, it was interested in this culture, for example. And uh, we had built some good institutions. But today, I don't think we've ever been more American, both in political obsessions and in what we read and what we discuss uh, so-called water cooler discussions and what we talk about on the internet. So it's a combination of these things that I wanted to write about. We'll come to your observations about Canada's culture and society and politics in a minute. But before we do, let's talk about your own immigrant experience. What brought you to Canada in 1999? And what initially drew you to the country's culture and politics? In 1999, the, just the last war of the several Balkan wars of the 90s was wrapping up, which was NATO bombing of Serbia and Montenegro over the war in Kosovo. And the Milosevic was still uh, the head of state called Serbia Montenegro. Montenegro has, has, was yet to become independent, regain its independence in, in 2006. It was a very unfortunate time. And the 90s were just a te- terrible, terrible, terribly unfortunate time. And hundreds of thousands of young people from the region have sought to leave it and to 
continue their lives somewhere else. And um, I got a scholarship to study political theory at Dalhousie. And I just jumped at the opportunity, had no idea where Nova Scotia was, had to open the map and, and look for it. But, uh, and then I uh, finished that and uh, got my first part-time job in publishing. And then just you switch from visa to visa. Used to be an extremely long process. I mean, credit to the Harper conservatives, they, they fixed the immigration problem that the liberals governments uh, created the backlogs that you'd have to wait three years for your application to be processed and so on. So it's a bit faster now, but then you'd, you'd have to put your life on pause and wait for several years. And it's tricky and demanding, but, um, you know, one persists. You've written that you were in part rejecting the quote, blood and belonging of Eastern Europe, and perhaps were attracted to the political pluralism that Canada represented. You've since grown more skeptical of the Canadian model. You write, quote, there is no Canada for all, no political cause for all, and no arts for all. Here's my question. Did Canada change or did you change? Canada has changed in the last 20 years. A lot of us move westward in search of liberal democracy. Now, I mean, people who grew up in a liberal democracy don't find it particularly interesting. I mean, as Fukuyama said, it's possibly quite boring not to have radical political have a private life. So that's something that we've been struggling in, in the Western Balkans region is there's always intrusion of history and politics into your private life. You cannot pursue your private obsessions. Like I talk about Richard Rorty writing about how he was obsessed with wild orchids while also being a Trotskyist. So he couldn't find, what was the point of Proust? What was the point of the wild orchids? Effectively, it's a question, what's the point of the arts? What's the point of love, friendship? All the things that you develop in the civic sphere that don't necessarily enhance the cause of justice, for example. So we, I, I actually came in search of a private life, something that, a, a, a life that will let me not constantly be politically engaged. And it's, it's a very important feature of liberal democracies. And I mean, people have written about it this for ages. I mean, starting with Hobbes and the Leviathan, where you give away a sovereignty to a sovereign body or a sovereign in turn, in turn of, um, and in exchange, you get your private life. So you, you have a unified law, you have a, a body that has a monopoly of violence. And you don't worry about warlords. You don't worry about sectarians. You don't, you don't worry about the politics is going to come one night and take your kids away. So it's, it's, that's, that's, uh, maybe we romanticize that, that kind of a trade. And, um, but of course, of course we romanticize the West. And of course we romant, nothing is ever set in stone. So of course now 20 years later, free speech has fallen down the list of values and freedom of assembly has fallen down the list of values. Police having the monopoly of violence and policing is being questioned. One set of laws for all is being questioned in Canada, both philosophically and, and practically politically. So all these things have been chipping away at, at sort of a Canadian liberal democracy um, profile. And, and Canada seems to be okay with it. Uh, there's so much insight there, Lydia. Your comments about the kind of creeping politicization of our lives at work, our, our lives at home, our, our lives in other civil society settings is really well taken. You know, as you observe, the purpose of our political system at its best is to uh, kind of harness 
political disputes and enable us to, to live out the rest of our lives free from um, that kind of politicization. Uh, we get represented, yes. One more question about you and your experience before moving to some of your, your deeper cultural criticisms of Canada. You write beautifully about your complex attachment to your old country. For someone like me who hasn't gone through the immigrant experience, can you talk about the lasting feelings that one, one has from where they left? And, and what's your relationship to your homeland today? It has been changing. Um, as a young person, 25, I immigrated when I was 25. I thought it really doesn't matter. You can just cut all the ties and reinvent yourself completely. And this is a little bit the French model. Like it, your ethnic background doesn't matter. Let's just all unite. And the U.S. is a little bit like that because they're like they're, they're, they're serious about melting, the melting of the differences into something nice, something new, different. Uh, Canada was always a bit different, but it, it had it also had that as a project. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It really doesn't matter. And not a lot of countries do have this. Uh, we tend to forget this. Not a lot of countries... You can't go just from anywhere without having any family in a country that you move to and just create your own life from scratch. So that was an interesting challenge for me. And not again, not a lot of countries will give you that opportunity. And uh, that's when you're young. That's when freedom matters the most. That's when, you know, getting away from your parents, from your tradition, from everything that kind of you feel is engulfing you uh, matters the most. And now that I'm middle-aged, um, it's a different, you have a different idea. You have a different notion of what a good life is. And what I miss, for example, now is having all kinds of ages in my life. You know, it's important for a good life. I think it's good to have older people, boomers, children, teens, zethers. And if you're an immigrant who emigrated without your family, you'll have to create all that from scratch. And of course, I talk about the importance of friendship. And it's a particular challenge for somebody who immigrated on their own because the conditions for, for the growth and, and thriving of friendships in North American large cities, I don't think it's very good. And I think, again, I think the Anglosphere, large, large cities in the Anglosphere have this in common, a lot highly multi, multicultural uh, cities of the Anglosphere. So um, it's a strange, I feel, a, I feel weirdly split because there's a, a lot of people that, that don't communicate with a lot of things, elements in me that don't communicate with, <laughs> with each other. Like, I mean, I have maybe two or three family members who can read English and only two family members have read my book. It's a very interesting thing. You know, it's slightly divided down the middle, right? And so when two things connect, you know, Ian Forster's only connect because the life will be fuller. It's, it's such an incredible pleasure. And that's, for example, what Alice Monroe's stories let me do. And that's, for example, what finding Northrop Fry analysis in an analysis of a Montenegrin novelist helped me do. So finding these hooks is just so wonderful. Whereas as a young person, I just didn't care. You can just be international. Any culture can be yours. Oh, there's so much there. Thanks, Lydia. Let's shift the conversation now to some of your discussion of trends in Canadian culture and society and politics. One of your criticisms of Canada is a growing tendency towards conformity that Canadians have lost, in your view, the, quote, independence of spirit and curiosity. Do you want to elaborate on this idea? What do you think is behind it and how does it manifest itself? Now, I wouldn't be as rude to say or as general, generalizing to say that the whole country has lost it. 
but some of its institutions are clearly losing it. And these are the important, the so-called meaning-making institutions, right? The public schooling, the arts organizations, the media, the alternative media. And, and most of them have accepted this, the divisions, the irreconcilable differences approach to what, what is canon. I mean, you, you now see writers, writers in residence ads that advertise for Canadian and indigenous writers. So somehow now this is two different cultures. This is, this is new. This is completely new. And then you see ads for jobs that specify preferred ethnicity. I don't know. Maybe I'm naive, but that's just very unexpected. I understand people want to redress historical injustices. They want to improve diversity in their organizations. But having it like as a public policy, only ethnicity X and ethnicity Y need apply. I don't know. Maybe I'm cra- either I'm crazy and find this unusual, or the world has, or the Canadian institutions have gone a little bit crazy. So things like that are kind of um, a little bit puzzling. I cited the book earlier when I talked about how one of the reasons that you chose to come to North America and Canada was to reject a system of blood and belonging. And it's uh, as you say, it's it's striking that after being here for twenty years, there are these elements of blood and belonging emerging in our society, kind of counterintuitively in the name of liberalism, which is, as you say, something that may not have been anticipated. You mentioned in a previous answer, the way you've come to think about cities in Canada and the Anglosphere. Let's take that up. You you observe in the book that there seems to be a, a narrowing of opportunity in Canada for those outside of major cities and certain professional careers. What do you think are the socio-political consequences of these trends? And why isn't it getting more attention in our political life? I know it's, it's, it is a big issue. I mean, post-secondary education is now a completely middle-class affair because you have to get, have quite a bit of money to continue it and also graduate education. Arts education. I mean, I, I covered opera a lot. I love opera. I love literature. I spend a lot of time with writers, with singers not only come from upper middle class and middle class fam- tend to, but also from like really wealthy families now. It's extremely difficult to put a kid through this, this kind of schooling to have a degree that's not immediately profitable, that requires further professional development, that requires travel, that requires coaching in languages. It's just extremely hard. So what we're seeing in our journalism, in our fiction writing, in our art music is this middle classization. I don't think I don't think that's useful, and you can see it in journalism. You can see when a middle class rule. I mean, books have been written recently about this. That if you have journalists from elite schools running uh, the media, the, the issue is going to narrow down, the um, value is going to narrow down, and there'll be a lot of things like luxury beliefs and some peculiar, some peculiar, peculiar conversations that only happen on Twitter among journalists that have no, <laughs> nothing to do with anything else. So it affects the institutions if only one class is being recruited for them. That's one issue. And of course, the, the, uh, the hunkering down within our own ethnicity, if you're a large ethnic group uh, and you just em- immigrated to Canada, you have all these pre-existing venues that your own ethnic group is offering you. Of course, you're going to stick with your own group. And I don't think that's, and Canada is agnostic about that. It says, oh, well, whatever you do, if you want to do your own separate cultural institutions, fine. We're not going to offer any <laughs> unifying narratives to you. You just do your own, uh, you know, Kachak dance or Chinese opera, or, you know, 
you, you separate yourselves, we're fine. And I think it's it's a thing that that uh, that a serious serious society and a serious culture should should look look at and uh, wonder about what unifying narratives do we have? Because as as is as the situation is now, our one unifying narratives are those that come from the U.S. We're just mad about American uh, culture, and that's that's sort of what's most most mostly available. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I promise I'll ask you about the influence of American culture, including, you know, the kind of growing importation of American ideas and debates about race and social justice and so on. But before we get there, I, I just want to follow up on the, the, the role of cities in place. You have this fascinating observation in the book where you call your home of Toronto a hybrid of Dubai and Vancouver. And I don't think it's meant to be a compliment. Help me and listeners understand what you mean. Well, this is this is going to get a little uh, municipal nerdy now. So <laughs> bear with me, bear with me. <laughs> it's the city zoning that I, I suppose we, we just inherited from so-called colonial practices. With that, That's really an expression of how colonial country was built in that we've divided into parcels, we've divided ourselves into these lots. And then in Toronto, you're only allowed to develop within, let's say, three kilometers square. Outside of that, it's all single, single family house, houses, which often detached, often very big, with front and backyards, and that's become a normal. And so the city planners call this the yellow belt. And of course, those residents associations are the only and the most active <laughs> associations. I mean, tenants are not particularly active in municipal life. So I live in this downtown where you're allowed to develop and towers of 50. We're tearing down mid-rise buildings to build towers of 50 stories because that's the only place you can develop. You can't really. I mean, there's, a, there's considerable resistance to gentle densification in, in these single family areas, right? So it's it's a, it's a sort of a I think it it affects our how we see our society and how we see ourselves. I think it slightly atomizes us. Like you know, it's I think it come it, it goes back to the Englishman's home is his is his castle. So now that that's come with British Empire, and I think we all oh, we just everybody wants to have their own home and own their plot of land and own you know front backyard cars and all that. So. Um, this is so you have like Dubai element is this overdeveloped center and the Vancouver and you can say Moscow, you can say London element is extreme cost of housing, just extreme. And the availability, the availability of rentals like this very low. So that will affect, of course, the so-called uh, um, research and development ecosystem of every culture, which is arts and bohemian, the so-called bohemian classes and the uh, the just cafe culture, small business culture. I mean, COVID did not help with the Main Street, Main Street uh, businesses. And now in Toronto, you have every third door is a pot shop. There's something weirdly dystopian has been happening in the last two years in Toronto when its streets were empty. It was under shutdown. There were pot shops. 
a lot of businesses had to close and there was no live culture. And somehow Ontario decided even rehearsing is not allowed. Most other, other countries have performing arts people, have, they have rehearsed, they have planned. No, we just shut everything down. Some film industry continued, film industry continued. Somebody smartly lobbied the Ford government in Ontario to get the designation of uh, essential industry so that at least filming continued. But live arts was just, was just a dead sea. It was very strange over the last couple of years. And I, I possibly wrote those words in the middle of those last last two years. It was very dead and very sad. Very, it's gotten, it's got, it's getting better now. A lot of my um, a planner is is filling uh, filling back up as if as if it's 2019, the good old 2019. But we'll see, we'll see what survives and what doesn't survive. You mentioned um, a, a sense of dystopia. You know one expression of that is evidence from uh, the scholar Mike Moffat and others that the conditions in cities like Toronto is increasingly forcing families to have to move um, to communities on the periphery. And the consequence of that is that we increasingly have, not just in Canada, but really in North America, what have been described as childless cities. Um, and so it reminds me of the, uh, of the, the novel and the film Children of Men, in, in which we increasingly have cities that uh, are not um, places where people feel like they can possibly raise families due to, among other issues, as you say, um, high housing costs. Absolutely. And if I can just add one footnote to that is, is the, the, it's not only municipal, it's federal as well in that childcare is extremely expensive in Ontario and, um, and hard to find. And so if two people are working, one salary would go practically to childcare. So I'm what I gotta, I gotta give them the credit where credit due. The current liberal federal federal government is trying to do something about a, a federally organized and sponsored childcare, which I mean, as a European from continental Europe, this, this is very, very exotic conversation to me because <laughs> there, I mean, childcare has been like state funded childcare. It's extremely cheap and available for everybody. It was just part of life. It wasn't a political issue. It wasn't an issue of who gets to send what money and what's that. It was just part of life, just like Medicare here is. So I think I think we should we should definitely go for that whatever whatever it's required. So we wouldn't be childless cities because the best jobs are in the cities. But then you, you have to commute in order to afford to live outside. You have to commute back in. You write in the book that freedom of speech used to be a left liberal cause in Canada, but it's no longer what you describe as a quote top drawer value. What what do you think happened? Oh, that is the hard question. I mean, you could make an argument that some of the key institutions that are in charge of keeping that as a top value have changed management. I mean, let's let's think of it. Maybe maybe Jonathan Haidt, the coddling of the American mind generation, has gotten these jobs. That's one of the arguments. These kids have grown up, gotten really good jobs in these institutions, and they're changing the cultures of these institutions, including the media, which is extraordinary to me. The, the daily, dailies are... It's I, I don't know how to make it. I mean, the NG, the NGO sector is always prone to this, the the the, the fads of what's the, the 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 hottest issue and all that. The libraries, luckily, the libraries in, in big cities are steadfast in their support for reader choice and uh, and freedom of of expression and uh, and assembly. But for example, libraries now a good example of how a, an institution withstands 
these these kinds of attempts at so-called progressive capture, but also, I mean, we see in the U.S. what's what's uh, reactionary attempts at reactionary capture of libraries, in which actually from the other side of the political spectrum you have people very unhappy that the libraries are carrying books like I don't know I'm jazz or I have seven genders or little like you know the discourse around groomer and. Uh, <laughs> So here in Canada, we have the progressives against the libraries. In the U.S., we have <laughs> the right wing, uh, wing of the Republican Party against the libraries. So I'm get, my theory is this: the coddle generation has gotten jobs, the coddle generations have gotten power, and this is what's happening. But then I talked to people in these institutions. I recently talked to a teacher in um, Ontario public school uh, system, and she she says the eva- the evangelizers are a min- minority. But everybody's terrified of them. So we, they all have to, nobody speak. And of course, who, whoever's near the retirement age, they don't want to rock the bow. They just wait, just look, look forward to the retirement. So this is what's happening in our media. This is what's happening in our other institutions. A very vocal, very ardent minority. A whole bunch of polite Canadians who don't want to offend. And then a bunch of people just wait to retire. And I suppose that's what happened. Yeah, that's a, a lot of insight there. Lydia, you, you mentioned in your answer and in previous answers the place of the United States in understanding some of these um, cultural and political developments in Canada. I just ask you to expand. What, in your view, is the role of American cultural influence here? What, if anything, can be done so that Canadians spend more time assessing their own issues and sort shortcomings without importing America's problems? Well, we remember when Roe v. Wade was suspended it was a crisis in canada too it was crisis in the uk so you'd had columnists who had a right call like just calm i do you really think that boris johnson is gonna is gonna abolish a a, a contraception like just just <laughs> just just be serious let's be serious let's be adults i i understand that people want to be, show solidarity i mean I, this is one of the unbelievable things montenegro had black lives matters uh, solidarity mark there are practically no black people in Montenegro. I mean, there's a, occasionally maybe an NGO or journalist or digital nomad, although there have been black people in, in the port cities from the antiquity to about early modernity. But since then, there have been no black people in Montenegro. So why would Isle of Wight have a Black Lives Matter march in support of? Why would uh, Keir Starmer uh, take, uh, take, take the knee? At which I think is an incredibly moving gesture. Within an American context, I, I was really moved, for example, when, I don't know, Eminem did it in the middle of a Super Bowl concert without making a much, much fuss about it. It's a meaningful gesture in the, American, in the American context. It has nothing to do with us. Uh, abolish the police stuff. I mean, we, when we're all in the grip of Black Lives Matter and just after the murder of George Floyd in 2020, our media were just chomping at the bits for a story of, of a police person being somehow implicated in the murder of a black person. I mean, you can see, like, we want to have American problems. To that degree, we want to be American, that we want to have their problems as well, because there's all this extensive vocabulary about how they're dealing with the problem, what the problem is. And so it's it's very tricky. And of course, race discourse. Now, all the countries in the world talk about race. Countries in which the concept is completely useless have started talking about race. I mean, if you look at the Europeans, we hate each other on different bases, <laughs> cultural language, um, any number of issues. Race is completely useless as a concept. If you look at inter-African relationships, 
I mean, look at genocide in Rwanda. It was genocide between two black ethnicities. So there's a whole lot of countries. The concept of race is useless, but it's very hot now. Everybody's using it. There's no science behind it. Whereas ethnicity, of course, it's a much more useful uh, term. We're all about race now. And we're just fabricating this. And there's this word from the Canadian progressive uh, catechism that's racializing. And that word has, has, has something, it's a kernel of, of truth in there. Yes, it's a process of racializing when you other somebody that they're a different race somehow. But that's what the progressives are doing as well. That's what they're doing when they say, okay, we need this race for this job. We need, we are advocating on, advocating on behalf of this race. So it's a bit, movement is very complicated in that. I mean, Americans have a lot of writers who write about this. Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, and that's long, that's a long, starting with James Baldwin, starting with the psychoanalysis of race. It's, it's quite an admirable uh, tradition there. Uh, people who have wrote, written the book Racecraft, it's a process of production. Of, and basically, as, Ch- as Thomas Chatterton Williams keeps saying, uh, there's no racism without the concept of race. Just the two rely on each other. If you don't have a concept of race, and it's a little bit difficult to be racist. And I'm, I'm glad to notice that we, as a humanity, have dropped the red and the yellow race concept. I mean, how quaint and weird do, do those words sound now? But somehow we're still clinging to white and black. And there's no white on human body anywhere, really. It's very strange. It's We're in the grip of this fantasy because the U.S. In the, is in the grip of this fantasy. And they think it's their, probably is their foundational sin. But uh, we got to get out of it. We got, we totally need a new vocabulary that it's not confined to the constant to the relationship between races. To your point about um, the emergence of new lexicon, I've been struck recently um, that I continue keep seeing um, the phrase equity deserving groups, uh, which just strikes me as so bizarre. As if there are some groups that ought not to be entitled to uh, expectation of equal treatment they used to be uh, they used to be equity seeking so somebody some manager some edi manager said wait a minute this is offensive let's call it equity deserving it's like it's such a production of meaningful meaningless concept it's just fascinating but people are making careers now in this and this is the dangerous bit you can have a really middle class good middle class salary being an edi manager now you know consultant uh, expert on indigenization You've been so generous with your time, Lydia. Let let me wrap up with one final question. You know, in light of the issues that you are observing within your adopted country, do you think you'll ultimately stay here? I was hoping nobody would ask me that, (laughs) but you do. (laughs) Um, My ideal life currently would probably be maybe two months in Montenegro and then uh, back for the rest of the year. But it's interesting, such are, such are the ways of alienation of, of in immigrants that I'd be very hard to me to find a good job in Montenegro at this point. So my first country, I'm more foreign in my first country now than I am here. So it's going to be an ongoing project. I, I, it would, I mean, it would be great if you can live a little bit there and then most of the year here and then nobody takes you for granted, right? <laughs> and you always keep yourself on your toes. Because it's, it's, it's a process of code switching. Whenever I go back there, freedom of speech issues is completely different. It's the old, you know, state, right wing, traditional. There's a church that's very influential. It's well-known, well-worn model of fight in favor of free speech, in favor of sexual minority rights. 
in favor of women's rights. It's it's good and well, it it's familiar. And then in Canada now it's completely twisted. <laughs> so so it, there's a bit of a code switching whenever I'm on a plane. I think okay now okay that's, that's a different set of problems <laughs> and a different set of words. Lydia Perovich, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. I want to commend uh, your book Lost in Canada. An Immigrant Second Thoughts, published by Sutherland Books to our listeners and readers at The Hub. As you've heard today, it's such a a kind of powerful story about issues of identity and place and some of these new and evolving trends in Canadian life. Thank you for joining us today, Lydia. This was such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.